Father, we come before you this night. Once again, we ask that you would work in the service, that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take our Bibles and let me turn. Yes, take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Okay, there we go. Revelation chapter 3. And tonight we start probably the most famous of all the churches. If anyone wants to spend time preaching about the churches in Revelation, usually the church in Laodicea, if they can only pick one, is the church they want to talk about for one reason or another. And uh, it is amazing the number of people that believe uh, that these churches are talking about ages of the church. Now, the first reason we reject that the churches of Revelation speak to church ages is no two commentators agree on what the ages are. If it were that simple, if it were truly biblical, it would be something that more than one person could find. Uh, Peter put it this way, no scriptures of any private interpretation. Uh, the simplest way to put it, if you're the only person in the world smart enough to figure it out, you figured wrong. Uh, God has made the greatest things in his word easy to understand. Yes, there are things, and we, as we go through the book of Revelation, we will see things that God has purposely put in the realm of the unknown. And when God doesn't give you the answer, don't go looking for it. Uh, it's not hidden somewhere in the text of Scripture. If it were that plain, it would be something that we would need to know. The other reason we reject the church letter, church age theory, is because then that would mean that we have to be whatever kind of church that our age is represented by. And that would destroy the entire context, the entire message, why would the, Jesus end each letter, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church, why would he go to each church and offer remedies if he didn't plan on people being able to do something about that remedy? Uh, there is no excuse to be a Laodicean church. There is no reason to become a Laodicean church, yet if we want to look around us, it certainly seems to be the, the direction that most churches have taken. And so as let's just read this instead of just talking about it. Verse 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, as we have reviewed these letters, this is the last letter Uh, to the last church on Jesus' list. And as we have gone through these seven letters, one thing that we have realized about each one of these churches is there are churches like these churches in existence today. There are churches that have left their first love. There are churches that are viewed by the world as being dead and yet... They are alive. Communism in China thought it stamped out the church. And yet, uh, several years ago, I was able to hear the testimony uh, of a man who was the son, actually the grandson, of a missionary who was serving in China in the 30s. He went back to some of the same places and made contacts with some of the same, well, with descendants of the same people that were serving in Bible-believing Baptist churches before the Mao Zedong Revolution. Don't tell me that the church is dead. Because Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But there are places where we cannot find and we don't know. But let me tell you, just because you don't know about the church in an area, just because you can't find it, doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have one there. In fact, I've talked to and and read stories about a group of churches in different places. And several years ago, there was a group of churches in India And no one even knew they were there. You know what they found out? Their doctrine and their practice was Baptist. Wonder where they got that from. Well, they claim that their history goes back to a man named William Carey, who was a Baptist at the turn of the 19th century, that is the early 1800s, during the uh, war, the, uh, 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 during the war, second war between America and Britain was when Kerry was being established and building his work in India. And these churches, as far as the, the story went, had had no outside contact with 
Baptist churches in America or other things. It was kind of a discovery, a mutual discovery. There are some churches that are classified as dead. But Jesus said, no, they're still alive. Amen. There are other churches where the world has gotten in. Well, let's keep it in order. The persecuted church. Uh, We just talked about that. We talked about the church that has Balaam in it. The church that allowed Jezebel to teach in the church. The dead church, the church at Sardis, and the church that Jesus has set the open door before, the church at Philadelphia. Now we come to what we call the lukewarm church. Now it is interesting here, and I'm not quite sure how much to make of this, but at the beginning here, it addresses this church differently than it does any of the others. You see, it was the church of Ephesus, meaning it was in the city of Ephesus. There, uh, there was the church in uh, Smyrna, the church in Thyatira, the church in Pergamos, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and then this church of the Laodiceans. Now, that means that the church was in the city of Laodicea. But as we read on, it seems like the Laodiceans maybe had a little more influence in what was going on in their church than Jesus did. One of the famous stories that they tell was someone was arguing uh, about the change in doctrine of a church. And they pointed to the picture that was on the wall of the founder of the movement and said, what do you think he would think about that? And he said, you just leave him out of this conversation. And of course, the retort was, looks like you already have. And they walked away. Uh, That seems to be what was going on in the church at Laodicea, does it not? They were leaving out the founder of the church. The church of the Laodiceans, they had changed some things. And as Jesus addresses this church, he addresses them as the amen. Now, I wish we had time tonight to go through uh, the sermon on amen uh, from beginning to end. The word amen is an important word in the Bible. The definition of the word just simply means of a surety. It means to affirm or guarantee the truth. And Jesus is coming to this church and he's introducing himself as the guarantor or the guarantee of the truth. Now, doesn't that tell you that he's got some issues with this church right off the bat? And then the second one is the faithful and true witness have to talk to my typist. Uh, I left out the word witness there on point C. The amen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for all the promises in God, of God in him are yea or yes, and in him, amen. They're certified by Jesus, 
They're promised to us by the ministry of Jesus, but the promises and the teaching of God is unto the glory of God by us. They're meant to be lived out in our life. That's what the verse in Corinthians is telling us. And Jesus introduces himself as the amen, the guarantor or the affirmation of the truth. The second title he uses is the faithful and true witness. It is one thing to be true. It's another thing to have always been true. Present tense. And there's no way to put that in English. Uh, always be is. I mean, it just doesn't work. Uh, but Jesus is always present tense. He is always true. And he has been faithful. That's what the word faithful simply means, is Jesus has always been the way, the truth, and the life. And there has never, ever been a time when a believer in God has an excuse not to know what God wants us to do. Jesus witnessed God's word. He lived without error. Jesus never backed up. He never had to say, I'm sorry. He never made a mistake. He never sinned, never once did he move over the lines of God's truth. This is a title that belongs only to Jesus Christ. No one else can use this name. The faithful and true witness. Yet, how many times through history have people claimed to be that very subject? If you ever listen to Mr. Harold Camping, which I don't recommend, and of course you can't now. He's had a stroke and can no longer speak. But he has claimed that the church was dead, and the only way that you could find the truth was listen to him on his radio program. Well, I mean, what happens when he's no longer on the radio program to listen to? I guess truth is gone, right? Uh, no, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Excuse me. Uh, the, I mean, we could just go down through the list. Sung Young Moon. Um, how many nutcases, liars, deceivers have claimed to have the truth? Jesus is the witness. In fact, a whole religious organization are called Jehovah's Witnesses. Why? Because they claim to be this very thing that only Jesus is. And the last thing he addresses himself by is the beginning of the creation of God. The first point in your outline here, the first thing I want you to, to get is Jesus is asserting his intimacy with mankind from the point creation existed. He is claiming the title, the authority of creator God, the source of all 
life, and yea, beyond that, all matter. Anything that is comes from him. I like the silly little joke where the scientist said, we are now ready to tell God we are able to do without him. And so the scientist goes up and says, God, we're ready to live without you. He says, oh, he says, how about having a man-making contest? And the scientist said, sure, and reaches down, grabs up a hand of dirt, and God says, get your own dirt. I just like that. How much, and please, don't go read science fiction here, but how much science fiction has been written where somebody finally discovers the source of the creation? Most of it's been written by NASA, by the way. Um, and you'll find it in the nonfiction section of your library, but it actually belongs in the sci-fi area of your library because there's not an ounce of truth to it. It's all dependent upon the fact that there cannot be a God because we can't see him. Well, I think that's going to be addressed here in this actual writing to his church about putting some eye salve in your eyes so that you can see. Amen? And the beginning of the creation of God, the source... God created man for one purpose, to bring glory to God, to have fellowship with God. Now, why God would put up with all he puts up with for mankind, only God could do that. Amen? And so, as Jesus introduces himself, the amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of the creation of God... And if anybody tries to tell you that Jesus was the first thing created, uh, they are not paying attention to the Bible. The Bible here says the beginning of the creation of God, Jesus is the source, not the first thing created. And so as we look on here, he says, I am the Amen. The guarantor of the truth, I am the faithful and true witness, I am true, always have been true, and always will be true, and I am the creator, I am the source of everything that you are, came from me. I know thy works. He says this to each of the seven churches. By the way, there is nothing you can hide from God. How many of you have ever, don't raise your hands, but tried to lie to God about something? Most of us have at one time or another. Oh, that really wasn't that bad. We usually lie to ourselves about God, don't we? Might be a better way to put it. Listen, it was bad enough to send Jesus to the cross. That's bad. Let's not pass something off as insignificant, if it is sin, it is not insignificant. Jesus says, listen, I know what's going on in your church. By the way, it's my church. It belongs to me. I'm the one that holds the candlestick. I'm the one that has the seven stars in my hand. He says, 
I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, it is an interesting transition here how Jesus says to the church, I know thy works, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot because you're lukewarm. You're not cold, you're not hot, you make me sick. Have you ever gotten a cup of coffee and it is really hot? And you say, I'm just going to sit it down for a moment. Get a phone call, some things come up, and you pick it up and take a big drink of that coffee, and it is tepid. I mean, oh, and you're just sitting here, is it worth swallowing, or do I mind cleaning up my office afterwards? I mean, this is terrible. This is the picture that Jesus is painting with words as he's talking about the works. One commentator said, this cannot be talking about your spirituality because why would Jesus wish you were cold? Well, I mean, that that might be a valid point. But I don't know that Jesus is necessarily talking about your level of spirituality. He's, He's talking about the pleasingness of this church. You know, he's already addressed the church at Sardis. He said, you're dead. He said, but there's still a few at Sardis that haven't soiled their garments, haven't defiled themselves with the world. And so what we need to do before we try to figure out this thing, we need to understand that Jesus is saying cold's better than lukewarm. Hot is better than lukewarm. This lukewarm thing makes me sick. It is not pleasing. It is not acceptable in any fashion. Now he gives the reasons why they are lukewarm. Look at verse 17. We need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Because thou sayest... Now, this is an interesting point here, and we just got to get this phrase. He said, you're lukewarm because you say. Now, if you go on to the web or anything, get these spiritual self-help books, here's where they all start. You need to take a spiritual assessment of yourself. Now, can you find me one passage in the Bible where it says to take a spiritual assessment of yourself. In fact, the Bible says that we don't know how to pray as we ought. How in the world are you going to evaluate yourself spiritually as you ought if you don't even know how to pray as you should? You say, but doesn't the Bible say to judge ourselves? Well, it most certainly does. What you do is you get out the Word of God and you check what the Bible says and then look what's going on in your life. And if what's in the Bible isn't what's going on in your life, then where's the problem? 
It's with you. But this idea of being able to evaluate your own spirituality is the key to what lukewarm Christianity is. Because when we evaluate ourselves, how does it always turn out? I'm as good as the next guy. Isn't that how we do things? Uh, I think Paul sent a letter to the Corinthians and he was talking about comparing yourselves among yourselves and that's not a wise thing to do because when I take my spirituality and measure it up against the next person's spirituality, where are we going? When the blind lead the blind, what happens? They both fall in the ditch. And so the biggest problem we have here is they have removed themselves from the standard of God's word and are judging themselves by themselves. And our human mind is, a, is an incredible thing. When we remember things, we always remember them either better or worse. We, we do not remember things accurately. My son and I got an ongoing thing. Dad, you didn't tell me about that. Yes, I did. I definitely remember telling you. I don't remember you telling me. And uh, one thing we have found out, that even though he is young and I am old, neither rememberer is working 100%. Amen? So it needs to be written down. Uh, do you think that's why God wrote it down? Because he doesn't want us evaluating ourselves based upon what we think. Because if it has to do with you, how many times has someone injured you personally? either saying things to you or treating you in a way that hurts you. And you finally get to sit down with that person and try to weed this thing out, and you find out that they think that this thing that they did, this injury that was leveled at your way, this injury that changed you dramatically, was not even an important thing to them. Why does that happen? It's because our mind, when we judge the bad things that we do, it makes it a whole lot better than it was. A lot less damaging. That's what our mind does. God has built into the human being a, a, a thing that blocks out extremely traumatic things. Oftentimes, if you're in a car wreck or some, something like that, a, a victim of a vicious attack, your mind just shuts off and stops recording the events. Now, what was going on here in Laodicea is they were making an evaluation of themselves. This was the first thing. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods and have need of nothing. 
Now, history tells us that Laodicea was an affluent area. It was on the major trade routes. There was a lot of things going on here. Lydia, the seller of purple, was from Laodicea. And uh, though there wasn't a church there when she moved to Philippi because she hadn't gotten saved yet, so uh, it was an area of great commerce. And they said, just because we have our physical needs met, this is what Christianity is all about. Um, Doesn't this sound like TBN? If you really are with God, you'll have money in your bank and you have a new fur coat hanging in the closet. Who wants a fur coat in the fall anyway? I don't know how that works, but... uh, they, I'll have all of these things and I'll never ever be sick and I'll be strong and healthy and uh, without going to the gym and I'll be all of these wonderful things because God loves me. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. But that's what the church in Laodicea said. Because our physical needs are met. God has provided for us. By the way, if you want to know where Rick Warren type Christianity, purpose-driven Christianity fits in, it's right here, Laodicea. I am rich and increased with good. I tell God what I want and he will give it to me because the church is not the body of Christ to take the message of Christ to a lost and dying world. The church is a service bureau where people get their needs met. Now, let me explain to you, you can get needs met at the church, but that's not the end goal. God meets your spiritual needs so that you will have something to serve him with. That's what wasn't going on in Laodicea. They weren't praying. They didn't need to pray. They weren't measuring themselves by the word of God because they had what they thought they needed. And again, the emphasis is what they thought they needed. Because when we get to this second part here, it says, and know us not. These are the two reasons. Reason number one, thou sayest. You see, when you let the Bible judge what's going on, it's not you saying it, it's God that is saying it. People get upset sometimes, and and several people over the years, Pastor, I just can't stand your dogmatism. I said, it's not my dogmatism, I'm sorry, but when God says something, I feel rather confident about saying that this is true. Now, if I'm giving you my opinion on, I try to be very careful that I am giving you my opinion on something. But when God gives his opinion on something, there's no more discussion left. The church at Laodicea was not based upon God's opinion. They were based upon their opinion. Hence, lukewarm. And we're not going to have time to finish this whole thing tonight, but I I want us to, to get a hold of one thing. Jesus' final conclusion here is, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, let me ask you a question. 
What else came out of Jesus' mouth according to the book of Revelation? Does anybody remember? A sharp, two-edged sword. When John turned around and saw him, there was a sharp, two-edged sword that came out of his mouth. Now, what is that sharp, two-edged sword? It is the written word of the living word. And what wasn't the church at Laodicea paying any attention to? The written word of God. And Jesus is making a connection there. This lukewarmness, this measuring yourself by your own standard, allowing your opinion of yourself to stand in the place of Scripture And then what it leads to is this second point right here. And knowest not. Now, how many of you have ever had to take the SAT, ACT, one of those college entrance exams? Oh, those things are so much fun, aren't they? Don't you just enjoy that kind of stuff? They always put questions on there. One or two. That you just have to be one of those pointy-headed individuals that spends nothing in their entire life but reading books to know the answer for. You know what I'm saying? There's always one of those questions in there. Now, I'm sorry. If you have not studied algebra, there is no way you're going to know the answer to some of those questions. Because unless you know how to work a quadratic equation, there is no way you're going to get the right answer. just isn't, even if you try to guess. I mean, you might be lucky, but if you know and understand algebra, then you can know the answer. When it says, thou knowest not here, it's not just saying you are ignorant of this fact. It is saying that you do not possess the mental reasoning capabilities to even come to the proper conclusion and know why you're there. Are we still together here? It says, it's not just the simple fact that you're ignoring this thing. No, it says you don't comprehend it. Not only do you not comprehend it, you do not have the ability to comprehend it, even if someone sat down and explained it to you. I mean, I could set Philip down and work a very difficult trigonomic problem and explain the whole thing to him. And when we're all done, he's going to sit there and go, Yeah, because he has not yet developed the ability to know and comprehend all of the things that it would take to work such a mathematical problem. Are we still together here? You see, because the church stopped using the word of God and started using their own opinion of the word of God and of themselves... They shut themselves off 
from the ability to even comprehend the things that Jesus was saying to this church. He said, you don't know that you are wretched. Now, I would pray that none in this room has ever experienced human wretchedness. But if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Wretchedness is an inability to provide even the most basic things. It is an inability to provide clothing for yourself. An inability to provide or even eat normal food. Probably the best example that I can give that would make connection, and it is a horrible one, but at the end of World War II, as Germany was imploding, our American soldiers made some discoveries. It was called concentration camps. And they found people in those camps that were wretched. Not because of what they did to themselves, but because of what was done to them by others. Jesus was looking at this church and he says, you don't understand that you are wretched. You're a human, you're a spiritual, I should say. You're a spiritual skeleton of what you ought to be. You are starved almost to death. In fact, someone that has experienced long-term malnutrition cannot even have the will to eat. Sometimes they have starved to death looking at the food that would save them, but they can't overcome their own wretchedness to force themselves to eat. This is the word Jesus is using in describing this church. Now, how did they get that way? It wasn't because of what Jesus did to them. It's because of what they did to themselves. They were wretched, but they didn't know that they were wretched. I mean, the National Geographic, I mean, National Pornographic, I mean, National Geographic Society has spent the last 50 years trying to revive ancient pagan demonic culture. They go into these most primitive areas and find the darkest, most depraved human beings that have ever lived and said, tell us the way your grandpa did it. How they went down to the cemetery and dug up the dead bodies and, and all of the things. That's what they were interested in. These people learned a few things. And they started putting clothes on and stopped killing each other and eating each other. And all of a sudden, the people from National Geographic Society went to the governments and said, you can't let those missionaries go in there. They're changing the culture. What a terrible thing. I mean, I can't even describe to you the things that went on. I wouldn't. And yet they're trying to preserve those things. Why? 
Well, it's part of their ancient culture. You know, there's some ancient culture that just needs to be left dead and buried because it is wretched and it is miserable. And these people had no way of comprehending their own wretchedness and miserableness until they saw somebody that lived a little differently than they did. And then all of a sudden they started wanting something that was a little better. I mean, why wouldn't you want a medical doctor to treat you than have a witch doctor come and smear cow manure on the disease? That's really what happened. And that's some of the nicer stuff, by the way. Jesus is looking at this church. He said, you're wretched. You're miserable. Now, when we think of miserable... Mom, supper's a half hour late. I'm just miserable. I forgot my umbrella. I had to walk the whole way from the bus station in the rain, and I'm miserable and I'm wet. That's not miserable, my friend. I mean, you may feel a little less than you ought to, but this miserable is connected to the word wretched. It's in a state of total humiliation. And poor. Now, the church said it was rich. Jesus said, You're poor. It is hard for anyone living in this country to understand the meaning of the word poor. Because if you're destitute laying on the street, what's going to happen? Well, some good Samaritan is going to come by and take a picture of you with their cell phone, right? Uh, no. Somebody's going to dial 911. And whether you got there of your own case or whether you got there because someone else hurt you or tried to destroy you, it doesn't matter how you ended up in that destitute situation. There's going to be people come and the ambulance is going to stop and they're going to pick you up and they're going to take you to a nice hospital, and if you're still alive and breathing, they're going to give you medical treatment, they're going to give you a bath, they're going to put you in a clean bed, they're going to run all kinds of medical tests, they're going to try to do something to help you. That's what America is about, my friend. Don't talk to me about people who are dying on the streets because they don't have health insurance. That is absurd. Now, there are many countries where that happens, but it doesn't happen here. In fact, any time the government gets in, it just gets all that much harder for people to get treatment now, doesn't it? But listen, there are countries where people cannot, no matter what they do, no matter how many hours they work, no matter how diligent they are and moral and clean in their personal life, they cannot get food and clothing unless someone else brings it in. Now, what's the main reason for this? Cruelty of other human beings. You know why there's a famine in Somalia? It's because the people who are running the docks are the pirates. No one knows how many tons of food rotted on the docks 
that was shipped there for hungry people because the warlords wouldn't let the food go to the people that were hungry. When you're poor, it means you cannot provide necessary things to sustain your life. Jesus said, your church, you claim to be rich. You have everything you need. In fact, when it comes time to praise, well, Lord, I just don't, can't even think of anything that I need. And Jesus said, you don't understand, you're wretched. You're living in the concentration camp of sin. You're miserable. You're humiliated and you're not even aware of the fact that you have been put in this position. You cannot do anything to provide what is necessary for life. And on top of it, you are blind and you are naked. Now, that'd be a pretty awful description of a human being. Now, would it not? We often use the term, well, that just blindsided me. I couldn't see it come. Right? Well, that's the kind of blindness. I mean, when you're blind, you can't see. And Jesus is talking in the spiritual realm, says you guys are literally blind. Has there any, ever been a time when you thought you could see something that you didn't see? I mean, if I don't put my reading glasses on, I've, I've read all kinds of interesting things in the Bible. Uh, they're not there. <laughs> uh, it's because I can't see properly. This last one is the hardest of all. How could you not know that you don't have clothes on? That you're naked? How could you not know that? I mean, the only people in the Bible that were naked and did not know and understand was Adam and Eve in the garden. And that was because God, uh, through his righteousness, had deprived them of that part of understanding until they sinned. Then they understood. You know, the only way you can know, not know that you're naked and not understand that the shame that is attached to that is by being around a lot of other people who are in exactly the same condition. That's what was going on in the church at Laodicea. This is what was happening. And Jesus said, because of these things, you're lukewarm. It was not, it's not talking about being hot or cold spiritually. It's because I would think if we were talking about cold spirituality, being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked would qualify for being cold. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? I mean, I don't think you could get any colder without losing your salvation, and you can't do that according to the Scripture. But this is what he means by lukewarmness. It's because you have refused my standard and you're going by your own. Behold, thou sayest. 
because thou sayest, I'm sorry. And you've even lost the ability, you've lost the framework to comprehend what is God's evaluation. And it's amazing today. We've talked to people on the phone that call up and say, well, we've got this new program that we want your church. And uh, either my wife or I will get the phone call and say, you know, we're just really not interested. Well, why? This is just such a wonderful thing. We have rock concerts that bring unsaved people in and tell them about Jesus. And we finally come up with an answer. Listen, just take us off the list. You wouldn't understand it if I tried to explain it to you. And invariably, no, that's not true, please. I'm interested in knowing what your reasons are. And when we're all said and done an hour and a half later on the phone, it's like, that doesn't make a bit of sense to me. Well, I tried to tell you that before we started. That it wouldn't make any sense to you because you don't have the ability, you don't have the faculty to put two plus two together and get four, so to say. You don't comprehend how the problem works. See, until you're willing to accept God's standard as the absolute authority, until you're willing to accept Jesus as the amen, the faithful, and the true, This is the one reason why most people are going to miss heaven. We're not talking about levels of spirituality here. We're talking about a total inability of people who are saved, this is whom Jesus is addressing, to comprehend and understand anything that is in the Bible. People have often asked the question, Pastor, how far can you go and still be saved? Well, I think Laodicea sets the limit. How about that? And it's pretty far out there, my friend. Don't try to see how far out you can go. Wretchedness is not a place where any child of the king belongs. By the way, when he's finished with this church, he said, he that overcomes is going to sit with me in my throne as I sit with my father in his throne. There is being lukewarm. It's not what we think it is. It's based on these two things. And where we need to be as a church is we need to say, now wait a minute. Am I assessing myself based upon my own evaluation? Is there a possibility that I could be in worse spiritual shape than I believe myself to be in? Uh... Jesus did it this way, the opposite. We've been dealing with the negative. He is judging his church. Blessed are the, what was the first beatitude? Poor in spirit. Now, I wish we had another half an hour. But we don't. 
But you see, the poor in spirit say, I have need of everything. And I can't get it. But if I come to Jesus and ask him, he'll give it to me. The church at Laodicea said, we have need of nothing. They were the antithesis of poverty in spirit. The blessing is for the poverty. The curse is upon those that think they have it all together. No one is in more trouble than a person who thinks they do not need help. You ever tried to give somebody from outside the city directions? Oh, I got a GPS. I'll be fine. I always snicker. Do you think you ought to give me directions rather than trust in my GPS? Well, that's fine if you want to do it, brother. But if it were me, I'd, uh, I don't think I'd listen to that thing. Because every GPS in the country sends you through the Lincoln Tunnel. Now, we don't believe in purgatory. But that's about as close as it gets. And if you ever want to try me out, just get on the other side of the city sometime, press in Astoria, and it'll put you right through the Lincoln Tunnel. Every time. Oh. Whoever runs those things must hate us. But let me tell you something. If you are assessing yourself, you're in trouble. If you're letting God assess you, guess what? You're in trouble, but you do have the answer. Because no matter how it works, you're still in trouble. Because you can't measure up. If you think you're measuring up, you're in more trouble than you could imagine. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and Lord, we ask that you would help us to see and comprehend what you're saying to this church. Lukewarmness is not talking about temperature. It's talking about our pleasability to you. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would allow us to see things as we ought to see them, to plead for your mercy, to understand the poverty and spirit that we truly possess. Come to the Savior. We ask you to work in hearts and lives tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And we'll just have the piano play as you keep your heads bowed and eyes closed.